This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 20th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. What does the sharing economy have to offer? And as importantly, what challenges does it pose to employment, our propensity to own versus rent, and everything from taxes to how we measure economic activity? At a Cato Daily Podcast live event held Friday, Michael Munger and I discussed his new book, Tomorrow 3.0, Transaction Costs and the Sharing Economy. Mike, let's build a foundation because when you take Econ 101, you're told to forget about things like transaction costs because that just complicates what we're trying to understand. But of course, you don't get to reality without relaxing those various assumptions that we make about the world in order to have these nice, clean economic models. So uh, how do transaction costs function and how have they functioned up until we had this great information uh, revolution in the last 25 years? There's two traditions in economics, so it, it partly depends who you take economics from. Big state school. Just assume a big state if school. You're, if you're taking intermediate microeconomics, you may never even discuss transactions cost. And in particular, you won't hear anything about having the level of transactions cost being something that's variable. Uh, being able to sell reductions in transactions cost is really the heart of the thesis of my book, and that's something that's both entirely new and as old as some of the souks in the Middle East that made it possible for, if you wanted to buy something, a bunch of other people would show up there also, and it's, it's not very intuitive. So transactions cost is something that's central to markets. It's not always been central to the study of economics, though, let me say my own introduction to it was, in a way, embarrassing. Um, I was a student of Douglas North, and uh, 1984, when I finished my PhD, now Doug later won the Nobel Prize in economics in 1993, but since I finished in 84, it's obvious there's no way I can claim credit for that, and yet I bring it up at every opportunity. Still, in 1984, in my dissertation defense, Doug asked a question, and being an economist, I went to the board and started writing equations to stall, hoping that an answer would occur to me. And after three or four very long, painful minutes, Doug raised his hand and said in a voice that you might use to address a well-loved but not very bright child, Michael, the answer is transaction costs. And I later realized that it didn't matter what the question was for Doug, the answer to every question was transactions cost. And he's probably right. So why is it that famously Ronald Coase said, if markets are so great, why are there firms? Well, the answer is transaction costs. Why is it that we own things rather than rent them? The answer to that also is transactions cost. So in the context that you ask, if you have two people, let's say that I own a widget and you're considering buying it, the transactions cost in that setting act just like friction in a physical system. So in a motor, friction gets burned off as heat. But suppose that I have a widget and you don't know that I have it and you don't know that you want it because you've never seen it. Well, under those circumstances, transactions costs prevent 
Not only transactions from taking place, mutually beneficial cooperative activity doesn't take place. But more important, the widget itself may never have been commodified in the first place. So if you push this transactions cost perspective, you realize that the very process of commodification is contingent on being able to conceive of something as something we could exchange and on being able to act on that. Once you start to think in those terms, at least for me, it changed a lot the way that I think about what's going on in the so-called sharing economy. All right, well, let's go to uh, 1840, uh, the Industrial Revolution and the implications that that had. Products had been produced by artisans. People uh, consumed them, or they, probably, they might have known the guy who made, made the plow or made some other uh, product that they needed to consume. And uh, the industrialization put a lot of those people, uh, those producers, out of work. Uh, the art artisans were replaced by larger scale production. And that had a pretty profoundly negative effect on a lot of people. So tell us how we survived that. Well, the title of my book is Tomorrow 3.0, and the claim is that we're on the verge of the, th the third great revolution. The first was the Neolithic, which is the move from hunter-gatherer society to fixed agriculture. The second, as you mentioned, is the industrial. Both of those resulted in a kind of commodification. And I was long skeptical of the claims that many Marxists or people on the left have made about the implications of commodification, but I actually think they get something right there. It's interesting that once labor is commodified during the Industrial Revolution, what that meant was if you didn't have a source of money income, you couldn't participate in this new economy. Now, if you did have some source of money income, what you would find is that things like Adam Smith's famous woolen coat were available to you at a much lower cost that a generation earlier, that woolen coat wouldn't have been available to a king. By 1870, common people could afford clothing that was of a quality that wouldn't have been available even to royalty, provided you had some source of money income. That wasn't optional. So the, the, the problem is that economic revolutions don't actually care what we think of them. So the reason why the, the Communist Manifesto was written in 1848 was Marx was talking about a revolution that to him was not conjectural or hypothetical. He could look out his window and see that London, Paris, Berlin were in flames. There were actual revolutions taking place all over the continent because of the sense of displacement and insecurity that traditional economic relations were suffering because of the commodification of labor. Now, we know the end of the story, and it turned out pretty well. In many ways, the result for consumers was a golden age that we were able to buy things that wouldn't have been imaginable at a price far lower than was possible. So the result of, ha of having access to that explosion of consumer goods, that explosion of new products and services that actually are the definition of wealth. Wealth is not money. Wealth is access to the things that we need and the things that we want. So the explosion of wealth that comes out of the Industrial Revolution after a period of a few decades. So if we fast forward to now, what's being commodified is not labor, what's being commodified is excess capacity. And that's a really different thing. We have a lot of excess capacity. We have a lot of unused things all around us. 
if we can use apps to sell reductions in transactions costs, the result is going to be the commodification of excess capacity. But that means that we may see a disruption where once again the cities of Europe and North America are on fire. Well, on that happy note, so I, you know, when I was in college now 20 years ago, um, I lived with some graduate students from India and they uh, were very close with uh, other groups of graduate students, also from India. And there was a rice cooker that was occasionally in our house and occasionally in someone else's house and occasionally in a third. I don't even know exactly who owned it. Uh, but in, in when, I, when I think about being able to rent goods for moments at a time, it seems you know, perhaps obvious that this is the way that these guys would make this arrangement. Now, they already knew each other. They were already aware of the needs of everybody else. It wasn't a surprise, and it wasn't something that they had to discover. Those are the traditional ways of reducing transactions costs. But it seems, but it seems obvious that there's, there's no reason why my knowledge of those people should be a hindrance in, in light of the information that we have access to today. So we're here. We've seen a radical reduction in transactions costs from uh, the Telegraph to uh, Craigslist, and uh, now with the ability of individual apps to hold our reputations, to allow us to uh, rent things we own out or rent things that are owned by other people. Give us a picture of what you think the short-run implications of all of that is. Well. The short-run implication is that we're seeing the Amazoning of society. Now, some of you who are older will remember what Amazon started out selling. It was a bookstore. That seems remarkable now. Amazon sells everything. Well, what is it exactly that Amazon sells? And the answer is reductions in transactions costs. Amazon is a kind of virtual mall. And when I say transactions cost, and you're probably already tired of hearing me say it, there are three aspects to transactions cost that I should emphasize, and I made them start with TR so they're easier to remember. The first is triangulation. We have to be able to find each other. Second is transfer. We need to be able to agree on a price, transfer the product, and actually pay for it. And the third is trust, that I have to have a reputation or some means of making sure that I trust you and you trust me. Now, there's a lot of proprietary websites that seem to be the website of a particular company, but if you look down at the bottom, you'll see powered by AWS. And AWS is Amazon Web Services. So Amazon realized that what Amazon is actually selling is not stuff. Amazon is selling reductions in transactions cost, and then they take a cut. So I can find almost any product that I want on Amazon. That's triangulation. Amazon has a wonderful, very fast delivery service and a payment service where they can process the transaction. So that's transfer. And then the third part is trust. We have reputations. That reputation is the number of stars that we get. They have an inventory of people who have enough uh, sales or enough purchases on both the buyer and seller side that we can trust each other in a way that just seems seamless. Well, the result is that Amazon has an enormous competitive advantage over anyone else who tries to sell almost anything. 
So the question is, what's the immediate future going to look like then? Now that we see the Amazonification of the society and we see the disappearance of many bricks and mortar stores, we just have seen Barnes & Noble has decided largely to pull the plug and close its doors. Well, how many of you all have a power drill at home? Why? The answer is transaction costs. Most of the time you don't want a power drill. What you want is two holes in that wall over there right now. The easiest way to get that, though, is to have a power drill. That's actually strange when you think about it. There are 110 million power drills right now in the United States. If you are to rank them from most to least used, that is the most used to those that are used hardly at all, and then you go to the median, the 55th millionth power drill. Does anybody want to guess how long it gets used in its lifetime? 30 minutes. Total lifetime use of the median drill is 30 minutes. Because it, and maybe it's two hours. Maybe I'm wrong. Even if it's two hours, that's not very much. Suppose that instead you could pull out your phone, scroll down to Uber, press power tools, and then press power drill, and then you can just put your phone down because somewhere you don't know where and you don't need to, an Uber driver is going to go buy a hardware store or some other source of where they sell, uh, where they rent power tools. They'll pick it up and the Uber driver will allow the software to solve the traveling salesman problem. That is to make sure that you can make the deliveries in the shortest total distance. That's a, an assignment that you get in sophomore math class, but the software solves it for and the Uber driver just has to drive. It's dropped off at a smart pod at the front of my house. My phone buzzes saying that my drill is there. I go out and get it. I drill two holes in the wall and my wife says, no, I changed my mind, not that wall. <coughs> then I drill two holes in the other wall. I'll spackle this one later. And then I put the drill back in the smart pod and an Uber driver picks it up. So for $2, I have rented a commercial quality power drill that's much better than I would have had access to for the one in my garage. Now, that power drill then probably goes to another user. That Uber driver takes that power drill to another user and another user. That power drill gets used eight or 10 times in that day. It's going to be close to the total lifetime use now of a power drill. So that raises what I think is the most interesting question. If you think in terms of Amazon selling books, now it sells everything. It mostly sells the reduction in transactions cost. What does Uber sell? Well, Uber sells reductions in transactions cost, and right now they sell ride services. But they have software that solves all three of the problems. Triangulation, we can find each other. Transfer, it's a set of payment services because it has your credit card. And trust, because it has reputations which means that there's no reason that to expect that Uber will be selling rideshare services for very long. Uber is not a threat to taxis. Uber is a threat to Amazon. Uber is going to be selling everything within 10 years. Uber has a big advantage because Uber specializes in immediately de immediate delivery and pickup. So Uber allows rental in a way that Amazon's model does not. Amazon's going to have to play catch-up. All right, I want to talk about two things in that example. One, the maker of the power drill and the guy driving the car. So the power drill, 
uh, is going to be very close to, in your example, of its lifetime use within a day or a couple of days, of its normal lifetime use, uh, people are going to think less about, relatively, about buying power drills. And for the guy driving the car, and you can take these in turn, uh, the guy driving the car, that is a short-run opportunity created by the fact that these delivery services are so popular. But that won't be the case in five years. So take those in turn. <clears throat> right now, the power drills that we have are not very high quality because they don't get used very much. What's likely to happen instead is we'll be manufacturing only a relative few. It's been estimated seven, eight million total in circulation at any particular time. Extremely high quality commercial power drills that will last much longer in terms of the amount of time that it's used. But since we'll be using it more intensely, that power drill will probably be used up within two years or so. But still, at any given time, we'll need far fewer power drills, which means that, and bread makers, and espresso makers, and all of the stuff that you now have in your closet and in your garage, all of those things can be rented rather than owned. All of the things that we now lock up in storage will be able to rent out and, or rent from someone else and not use very often. So the result is, most manufacturing jobs will disappear. The result will be that we can make only a relatively small number of very high quality commercial products which we can then rent. It's a dramatic increase in efficiency. It's a dramatic increase in the benefits to consumers. It's harmful to manufacturers, but that's often the way creative destruction works in capitalism. What about the reduction of waste? I mean, that seems like if the comparison is between a power drill that maybe works okay for the 30 minutes that uh, you or I might use it, and then, and then it just gets trashed. How, does, how do you view that, the reduction in the number of power drills, the dramatic increase in the quality of power drills, and you're going to get upset with me saying power drills over and over and over again. But um, what does that mean for uh, being able to repair things that, uh, that wear out if we're focused on quality and uh, a maximizing the use life of those products. Well, it means that we're going to get better at making things that last longer. It means that all of our footprint on the world is going to be much smaller. If I can rent things rather than own, I don't need storage space. I don't need closets. A lot of our cities likely won't need so many parking spaces. So in terms of the, you ask about the increase in efficiency, this is great. There's, there's really no downside except to the people who used to make the bunch of crap that we would buy and then pay to store. So if you own stock in a company that rents storage units, you might want to sell it because we're not going to need nearly as much storage space. If you have a bunch of closets in your house, you might want to think of repurposing them maybe to rent out on Airbnb, particularly if you live in New York because it'll be larger than the average apartment anyway. So the, the fact that we store so much space, I think we store so much stuff, I think will be something that 50 years from now people will look back on and say, why was it that they spent so much money keeping under lock and key things that they could have been renting out and that other people could have been using. So there's a company called Spinlister. And students at Duke, many of them have bikes, but they don't live in Durham. 
So over the summer, they have to pay to store their bike. Well, how much would you be willing to accept to rent your bike out instead of paying $20 a month to store it? So you have to pay $20 a month to store it for three months. That's $60. Suppose that instead you could rent it out for just $2 a month. That means you make $66. The $20 a month that you don't have to pay to store it and the $2 a month rental fee. But you could say, well, wait, what if my bike gets broken? But if you have an app that solves the problem of triangulation, transfer, and trust, then you don't need to worry about that, or at least it's, in, it, it, it's something that the, a problem largely solves itself. Maybe ownership itself will start to disappear. Some people will still want to own things, though. Some people will still have power tools. But at the end of the day, when you go home, instead of putting it in your garage and locking it, you can put it in the smart pod, and if someone wants to rent it, they can. My older son, who lives in the Lower East Side in New York, just lived in Berlin for three weeks because he noticed that he could rent an apartment in Berlin for quite a bit less than he could rent out his apartment on the Lower East Side on Airbnb. So if he was going to be gone for a while, instead of locking up his apartment, he made it available to people who could rent it on Airbnb. So the, the tools will be more efficient. The tools will be more durable. Uh, buildings will be more modular and there'll be less storage space, which means that our cities will grow in the sense that we will no longer need to have so much storage space, the existing very expensive real estate that now we have difficulty with affordable housing will become more affordable. But you've raised a key question about the person driving the Uber. I think he is a person. No. Go on. It is a robot. The problem, as Mark Andreessen noticed in a famous, a really prescient uh, Wall Street Journal article in November 2011, is that software eats the world. Now, we resist this, but software can do an awful lot of things that human beings can do. Many of you know that Seattle recently, in the sense that people, Seattle's an expensive place to live. They were worried that, um, People would not be able to live in Seattle unless they could get a living wage. So they raised the minimum wage to $15 per hour. If you go into a fast food restaurant now in Seattle, what don't you see? Humans. People, just like that Uber driver. Because it used to be I would go into the McDonald's and I would look up and I would say, okay, Big Mac, uh, fries, uh, no, and a shake, and an apple pie. And the person behind the counter would look for the corresponding words on the keyboard and press them. Well, instead of me looking at the board, just turn the cash register around. Just turn the cash register around. I can press those buttons. That means that the three people on the front line who used to work at McDonald's all lost their jobs. If I go into a Hertz rental car place, most airports in the United States, there used to be a person at the counter. Now my phone buzzes and says your car is in slot A39 and your security code is, and then some four-digit code. I go, I press in the, the code, I get my key, and I drive off. Three people used to work there. There used to be somebody at the front desk, somebody to do the keys, and somebody at the security gate. All of those people lost their jobs. So Uber is almost too easy a case because autonomous or self-driving cars are just going to be more efficient. And that they don't have to park. When they're not being used, they can go off somewhere else. 
all the parking spots that we now have that take up so much space, we can use for something else. A parking space in New York recently sold for $1 million. Now, it was a badass parking spot. <laughs> it has a light, it's underground, and it has security. But a million dollars for a parking spot. The value of parking is going to disappear because we don't need to have cars to park. So tell me about what happened to the guy driving the, the person driving the car. Or what, in five, 10 years, like this is a short run opportunity for uh, drivers to uh, make, you know, make their own hours and earn some kind of income, income uh, working, contracting with Uber or Lyft or some other service. But that's, that itself is going to go away as well. The Hertz counter, the McDonald's, and the Uber driver. So large scale job losses, uh, for relatively low-skilled uh, people. They're all sitting down at some bar thinking we're going to set the city on fire, which is why I'm worried about it being 1848 in America. So the question is, how are we to deal with that sense of dislocation, that sense that many people are likely to have, if I'm right, uh, and if Mark Andreessen is right about software e eating the world, how are we going to handle the problem of, well, let me put it this way. Economists have a notion of real wages. Real wages are the ratio of nominal wages to the price level. Nominal wages are what it says on your paycheck. The price level is how much it costs you to buy stuff. Suppose that prices fall because we can rent rather than own. Suppose that wages fall because manufacturing and other service jobs also disappear. Well, if prices fall by more than wages, that's great. And for some of us, that's going to be true. I think for many of us, that's going to be true. It doesn't matter how low prices fall if you don't have a job at all. And the question is, what's going to happen to those people? All right, so uh, in your view, some kind of robust safety net for those people is what? Inevitable, very likely, or a trade-off for avoiding violent revolution? I think there are three arguments for some sort of safety net to address this problem. The first one is really pretty pragmatic, and that is if you look at the amount of money that we're spending now on poverty programs, you take the total amount and you divide by the number of poor people, there shouldn't be any poor people. All we need to do is give them the money, but we don't do that. Instead, we have a bunch of programs that are managed. Uh, and furthermore, the tax rate that the poor face in the sense that if they get a job, they lose their benefits, often approach 100%. Now, I have a, a friend, a philosopher at University of San Diego, Matt Swolinski, who makes an argument for a more robust safety net just based on a kind of a sense that this revolution is inevitable, and on average, it's going to make us better off. But there's no such thing as us. There's me, and there's you, and there's you, and there's you. So it's like when economists say free trade make all of us better off. That's not true. Free trade does not make all of us better off. There's winners and losers. The dynamic process of working that out, that's a net benefit. But it may be that we would worry about those people for moral reasons who, through no fault of their own, 
play the game but find themselves in the position of losing. So there's, you can make an actual moral argument. I find that one less persuasive. Matt is persuaded by it. The third argument is the one that you also raised. There's just the realpolitik question. You look at the reason why Bismarck advocated for the creation of a welfare state in Germany. It was not out of a sense of moral obligation. It was, hey, y'all rich people, our cities are on fire. It's going to get worse. We can, for, we can divert revolution and produce a more productive society by letting people have the sense that it's insurance. So to the extent you see this as insurance in a world that is highly variable and unpredictable, it'll reduce people's sense of uncertainty and fear. So I think some combination of those three arguments leads me to think we should have something like a universal basic income. And I would hope that we could do it using a negative income tax and not spend any more than we're spending now. The thing that I find attractive about a universal basic income, about advocating for a universal basic income, is that it smokes out in many people a kind of paternalism. Because I'm saying we're spending enough money now to end poverty. All we have to do is actually give it to the poor people. And my person I'm talking to will say, oh, we can't actually give them the money. You know how they are. Well, no, do tell, how are they? <laughs> So clearly what they need is really smart people like you to order them around, said no sensible person ever. So I think it's true that if we just give people the money, some of them will spend it wrong. That's a consequence of freedom, is that some people will make bad choices. But many people who don't now have a choice will find themselves in a position where for the first time they have enough money to pay for childcare, try to get an education, get out of the poverty trap, that the benefits cliff now keeps them in. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, things that some folks here may find less interesting, and that is we have all of this uh, dead capital sitting in our large homes because that's what we buy when we feel like we need to have a lot of dead capital lying around. Um, what does this mean for housing? What does this mean for GDP, we seems like a reduction in transaction costs means more transactions, that's more GDP, uh, but relatively less stuff is being produced. So can you suss those out a little bit? Those are really big questions. Let me start by saying those of you who studied economics probably even 20 years ago, when you talked about the money supply, you would talk about categories of money supply that ranged from N1 to N6. So there were elaborate differences. Now we basically don't even talk about M1 because all of those have elided. Our ability to distinguish those things has largely disappeared. I think that GDP 10 years from now will also have gone the way of the dodo. Because GDP means that the only thing that because has, Because you view it, it will just become a much less relevant measure to, to GDP says that the only thing that matters is stuff that we sell, not stuff that we use. The value to consumers of having access to a capitalist economy is consumer surplus. The consumer surplus is the difference between what I value something and what I actually have to pay for it. Well, what's the consumer surplus of Facebook or Twitter? or Google, or Wikipedia. Those things are all free at the point of sale to the consumer. Now, they have revenue models, 
But all of those things create a lot of value. They count zero in GDP. So rental is going to seem like it doesn't produce much value in GDP. We have to have a way, and some people have proposed ways to do this. GDP is not a very good measure of the aggregate level of economic activity that's actually relevant to consumers. And so when we look at GDPs going up, GDPs going down, it tells us very little about the actual health of the economy. And so I think we're going to have to rethink that. Some people are working on it already. Because we're going to be delivering all this incredible value to people in ways that uh, is extremely valuable, but is not reflected in a one-to-one way with how we measure GDP. Because right now, GDP, we take the price at which something is sold and the quantity of it, and we multiply them, and then we add those things up. And the price of many things in the sharing economy is zero. All right, so uh, you mentioned uh, universal basic income, and that is, where do you view that as being something that becomes inevitable? Is that five years, 10 years? Uh, If we're at the beginning of this revolution, it seems like it could be uh, very quick uh, that we're going to see a lot of changes. Well, I do think we're going to see a lot of changes, and it's not just the universal basic income safety net that I'm worried about. Suppose that I'm right, and that now we actually are closer to John Maynard Keynes' famous but now long put off prediction that we'll have something like a two-day work week. Well, if if we're living in a world where we don't have jobs, there are very few jobs. What there are is gigs. There are already sectors of the economy that work in terms of gigs. I believe that there's between 170 and 180 different disciplines to make a movie. So at the end of the movie, if you've fallen asleep and you wake up just to see the last of the credits, nobody stays around until then. There's the key grip and the one my wife always wants to meet, the best boy. There's a whole list of very complicated activities that go into making up a movie. None of us know what they are. If you're a movie producer, though, you need to be able to hire those people. So in Hollywood, there are whole groups of people who, on LinkedIn, participate in each of these 170 or so different disciplines. So if I want to film a movie, I go on LinkedIn and I hire all of these different disciplines. The very first day, since everyone knows what their task is, it articulates like a machine. None of them, this is not a firm, none of them have worked together before necessarily. They work together in a way that fits for two or three months. And then, and they get paid well, and then they break up. And the gear is rented. All of, all of that gear is, is rented, and it's pretty expensive, but it's not owned, and so you have companies that specialize in renting it out. After three months, it fragments, and it's like a kaleidoscope. If you look at any, any particular image in a kaleidoscope, it's complicated and fixed. But when you move the kaleidoscope, it reforms into a completely different pattern. And so those gigs mean that every, every movie is a different group of people working together. So if that way of making movies spreads to other kinds of jobs, if you have a project, if you have a, construction works like this a little bit. Usually construction firms are not one company all the way down. There's a bunch of, bunch of subcontractors. So many 
projects are going to be built around just gigs, that means that you don't have health care, you don't have a pension, and you can't be sure that you're going to have a job a month from now. So somehow we as a society have to answer the question, how are we going to solve the problem that people want to have access to those sorts of services? When in the United States, all of those things until now have been tied to a job, traditional jobs are largely likely to disappear. Okay. Uh, that has implications for how we, uh, how the United States government, how state governments, how local governments get revenue. It's not clear. If, if this is how things are done, there are implications for the tax code. There are implications for uh, how people should be getting their health insurance. So uh, part of your story is not that happy. But I, I want to know, to the extent that you think that, that this progress is inevitable or possibly a very good thing, what are the ways in which government can, most, it can best accommodate the kinds of transitions that we are likely to see in the next few decades? I'm worried that what we will see is not really an attempt to best accommodate this. What I'm worried is that demagogues will exploit the fact that people are worried about their future and use that to try to grasp political power. Because this sort of uncertainty we saw in the Industrial Revolution in the early, early part of the 20th century creates a setting where people are desperate for someone who says they have certainty and answers. So I think one reason to try to get out in front of this, and I, I have to admit, all I'm really doing is raising some, raising some questions so that uh, people can look more specifically at some of these problems at the state and local level. Let me give an example of already we see an unexpected and hard to solve problem that is created by one of these great Silicon Valley unicorns, which is Airbnb. So Airbnb originally was conceived, you know where the name comes from? They, they wanted to rent out apartments, but they're a 25-year-old program, so they have sallow, pasty white skin, they smell bad, and they only, they're only awake at night. So they rented out their apartments uh, near San Francisco, and what you could get was an air mattress, and in the morning you would get a power bar and a vitamin water. So it's a B&B, because you get a power bar and a vitamin water, but it's not a bed, it's just an air mattress. So it wasn't a very nice one, but you could get 50 bucks. So Airbnb originated as a sort of elaborate, little, not little different from couch surfing. But Airbnb fairly quickly, it turned out that the value proposition was all of this excess capacity that we have in housing, particularly in large cities. New York, London, Paris, there's a lot of apartments that were purchased for investment. There's quite a few here in DC. And if you walk around, they have dark windows. If we have a way of renting those out, then it's more intensive use of what we have already. The next step, though, that was unexpected was that since Airbnb software allows you to get around the existing regulations, you don't have to pay hotel tax. You don't have to uh, have the hotel insurance. Then in Reykjavik, Iceland, in Paris, in London, people were buying up entire apartment buildings and then basically operating them as a turnkey hotel with Airbnb providing all of the services. So the result was a dramatic decrease in the amount of affordable housing. 
So local governments are very worried about this. I gave a talk in Australia, the prime minister and cabinet, they're worried about this in all of the major Australian cities. There's going to be a big decline in the amount of affordable housing. Now, all the cities that are having this problem, as far as I can tell, are those that have rent controls or some sort of restriction on the building of affordable housing. Well, instead of saying, you know, what we need to do is get rid of the restrictions that keep the housing stock low, which is the, actually the answer, what they say instead is, we need to regulate Airbnb. So I think that's the direction we're going to go, is sort of last-ditch attempts, instead of saying the entire regulatory scheme is wrong. We're going to try to regulate at the margin in a way that it will slow, but eventually then there, it will break. So it, it will slow change, then that regulatory system will break. I worry that in that breaking, we're going to see substantial disruption. Michael Munger is author of the new book, Tomorrow 3.0, Transaction Costs and the Sharing Economy. We spoke at a Cato Daily Podcast live event on Friday. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And when you think about it, ask Alexa, play the Cato Daily Podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.